0: last time that I spoke to you, it was about three weeks ago, we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And one of the main emphasis in that chapter was the contrast between the old and new covenant. Paul was trying to demonstrate to the people at Corinth that the false teachers were still ministering under the old covenant. And that should not be done. You cannot mix law and grace. There's just no way of those two coexisting. And he started to demonstrate the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant by contrasting many elements of those two contrasts. Now, I want to take a break from the actual text in 2 Corinthians to um, go to another passage in the word of God that deals specifically with the superiority of the, old, of the new covenant over the old because I am convinced that one of the main reasons why the church is not what it should be today, because many of us are still under the old covenant as far as our behavior and attitudes are concerned. We're trying to mix the old covenant truths with new covenant, and therefore we get no place. Now, last time, uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 3, from verse 9, this is what Paul says. If the old way... Which brings condemnation and that's talking about the old covenant now and specifically the law which brings condemnation these are strong words here if that was glorious how much more glorious is the new way the new way is the new covenant as represented by the gospel you see it's more let's put it in context is more glorious to depend upon God to touch the heart of his people to give rather than to browbeat the unsaved to give. You see, God is still powerful, he can provide, which makes us right with God. Verse 10, in fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. The old covenant was characterized by our doing something to get our benefits from God. That was the end of it. We had to do something. Paul is saying now, the new covenant is different, contrasting contrasted uh, to the old covenant, the new covenant now works with the heart of God's people. God writes on the heart now, not on stones, on tablets of stone. And he says that that is a more glorious way of doing things. Verse 11, so if the old way, the old covenant, which has been replaced, notice it has been replaced. In other words, as believers under the new covenant, We should not be doing anything that the old covenant said we should be done. Because it's passed away. It's gone. If the old way which has been replaced was glorious, that is glorious in glory, how much more glorious is the new which remains forever? So he's saying that under the new covenant we have something that is much more glorious than was under the old covenant. Not only that, the old covenant was only temporary. The new covenant, which is more glorious now under which we live, is permanent. It stays forever. So it's a tremendous contrast here now. Now here's something also that we don't normally focus on. It's the fact that the death of Jesus Christ, his shared blood, inaugurated the new covenant. And in fact, a major part of observing the Lord's Supper is to remember that fact. This is what he says in Luke twenty-two twenty. In the same way Jesus took the cup after he had eaten, they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He is here predicting, proclaiming the fact that he will inaugurate the new covenant through his death. The same thing we have in 1 Corinthians 11. The same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me yet it's amazing how little we reflect on the significance of the new covenant when we observe the Lord's Supper you see and this is something I think that we as teachers of the word have to change here and this is one attempt to do that today and in the days ahead now let me ask you a question what service would you say is the most important service at Calvary Bible Church for that matter and any other Christian church what service would you think a person would answer you if you ask the question, what is the most important service that your church holds? What do you think they would say? Now um, I'm not I'm saying that what most generally would say now, all right? Morning service, the AM worship service, the divine service, right? Divine worship. That is the emphasis that most churches place on divine worship. A worship service. I think you'll find that throughout. Now you might not realize it that in most cases when we have these so-called divine services we actually are worshiping or following old covenant ways rather than new covenant ways. We are actually mixing law and grace when we worship the way we do for the most part. This is a general statement for the most part. We're still following old covenant principles. Now, to show that this is true, let's look at the way worship services were held under the Old Testament, Old Covenant. One of the things that marked the way worship was done under the Old Covenant was rituals. In other words, there are certain specific things you had to do the same way all the time. All the time. This is what the writer of Hebrews talks about. And this is the book, the book of Hebrews That tries, not tries, but that clearly demonstrates the superiority of the New Covenant over the Old Covenant, especially when it comes to the way we worship. You see, most of the time we think of this like we sang today about what was being fulfilled is the fact that Jesus died and our sins were put away forever. He died once for all and therefore we don't have to bring goats and sheep into place anymore, right? And we focus on that. And we need to do that because... The sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament were all symbols or shadows of things to come. When Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross, all of those things were fulfilled. Therefore, the things that predicted that he would die are not necessary to be done anymore. Right? Now, one of the things that we neglect, though, is the fact that the way in which we worship was always also changed By the introduction of the old covenant. The way we worship was also changed. Notice what the writer says. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship. You notice that? Regulation. Rules. And also an earthly sanctuary. So he's emphasizing earthly as opposed to heavenly. Now the sanctuary. We like to call this a sanctuary. Why? Because we come here to worship. That is an old covenant idea or concept going to a place to worship that was done away with with the old covenant with the new covenant verse 2 a tabernacle was set up in its first room with a lampstand the table and the consecrated bread and this was called the holy place now he's going to describe the place that was set apart by God for worship and what was supposed to be done when you come to this place you have this place you must go to, and when you got to this place, you have certain things that you must do. Here's how he describes it. He talks about the tabernacle. The tabernacle and the holy place are going to be very summary here because there's so much here. Were uh, were well, actually shaped in the form of two boxes. So you could actually say that people had to go into a box in order to pray, in order to worship. You had one big box That was called the tabernacle. Inside this tabernacle was two other boxes. The holy place and the most holy place. We'll see that in a moment. Now, in the outside of the tabernacle, there was a veil, what they call the first veil. This separated um, people who were not Jews from those who were. In other words, true worshippers from those who were not true worshipers. You could not, the only people who could go into this place were believing Jews. That's all. No one else could pass this first veil to worship. They couldn't go into this big box. They had to stay outside. There's only a certain people who allowed to come in. These were the Jews, the saved Jews, as we would call today. Now, in this first big box, this tabernacle, The first thing you would see is what they would call the table of showbread. This table of showbread represented the 12 tribes who were presenting themselves to God for worship and so on. We'll talk about this in a minute. There's also a lampstand in the outer court, the big box, I would call it right now. Um, The lampstand spoke of light, of course, the light that God himself was. It... Portrayed this portrayed the coming of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. In John 8, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, this lampstand predicted or looked forward to the coming of the true light. Now, the idea is, of course, when the true light comes, we don't need this lampstand anymore. See the point? We don't need this ritual of showing The light, because the true light has come. Keep that in mind. Then it goes on, verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. He says we cannot discuss these things in detail now. He's like a preacher, I guess. You know, people won't go home. Well, I'm going to take some time to discuss some of these things in detail. Here is the second veil, which we call the inner veil. This is what I call the little box. If you really want to worship, this is where you had to go. You had to go into the little box, the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go there in that place, into the holy of holies or the most holy place. Now, why was this so important? Why could not anybody go into this place, and we'll see that they had certain... Pieces of furniture there as well that represented the presence of God is because of sin, and so this curtain represented a barrier between God and the sinner because of the fact that he had sinned. Isaiah fifty nine: Your iniquities have separated you from your God; your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. So all of these pieces of furniture and the procedure that was. Demanded by God and when it came to worship, all of these were teaching certain spiritual truths. And this barrier here into the Holy of Holies teaches that man was separated from God and he could not get into the very presence of God. That's what being was taught there. In there was also the altar of incense. We're going to talk later about that and the sweet smelling savor going into the presence of God when everything is done right. The prayers of God's people are as an incense in his nostrils and so on. All of that is indicated, but we'll get into that in a moment. Now, inside the little box, the Holy of Holies, was another box, the Ark of the Covenant. And that's exactly what the Ark of Covenant was. It was a box with certain things in it. This Ark, in verse 4, it says, contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. These were the three items that were inside this box called the, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant. They were placed inside. Let's look first of all at the significance of the gold jar of manna. Now I'm sure you all rem- remember the story of the manna. People going through the wilderness um, and God provided manna for them remember? And uh, they went out looking at it and they asked, what is this? And that's what manna means. Manna means, what is this? They didn't know what it was. And they kept asking, it's manna, it is bread sent from heaven. Alright? So the first thing, now why was this placed in the Ark of Covenant? This is what Deuteronomy 8 says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years feeding you with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you, notice now, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of our Lord. And so this jar of manna was teaching them the truth that God meets their needs. He provides for them, and he uses this to demonstrate the fact that God is the one who supplies. So all of these symbols meant something. They were teaching a spiritual truth. Now when we move ahead and see how it applies to Jesus, who fulfills this, it says in John 6:33 "For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and who gives life to the world." This was all pointing towards Jesus Christ as the bread of life and the bread of heaven." It goes on, "For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, so they said, this is the Jews. From now on, give us this bread. See, these Jews had not realized that Jesus had come as the bread of life. They hadn't realized that yet. They hadn't realized that the new covenant had come, and Jesus Christ is now the bread of life. Then Jesus is cleared. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. That's what the jar of manna was pointing towards. Jesus Christ as being the bread of life who would give eternal life to all those who would partake of him. But it speaks really of the fact that the people rejected what God had given them. The manna symbolized the rejection of the provision of God to his people in the wilderness. It it, it demonstrated the rejection of God's provision. Now, God placed that jar in there to continually remind the people that they had rejected his provision. That was sin. That was one of the reasons why they could not get into the little box we call the Holy of Holies. Something else was in there. It was called Aaron's rod which budded. Now, this is the command to put the, bo- the, the, the rod into the box. The Lord said to Moses, put back Aaron's staff in front of the testimony. That's another, that's another description of the Ark of Covenant, the testimony. To be kept as a sign, Not against now, as a sign against the rebels. You remember that Miriam and her brother um, objected to the leadership of Moses. He says, who do you think you are? You think the only one God speaks to is you? We can also get messages from God. You are not the only one who can lead God's people. You remember. And Aaron, rather than fighting them, left them in the hands of God. And you know the result. Miriam got leprosy and so on. And God stopped him to demonstrate that you should not oppose those who God appoints as leaders. If you do, you don't fight against the leaders. You fight against God. Now, it's important, of course, that the leaders are indeed those who have been called of God. But that's what the that's what the rod that budded represented. Because you remember, the people brought out, had all the leaders come forward, and they took all the rods that they brought, and they stuck it in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, leave them there. Overnight, they were left, and he came back that morning, and only one budded, and that was Aaron's rod. That demonstrated that Aaron was the one chosen of God, and that the people should not oppose the leadership as given by God. So, it demonstrated rebellion against God's authority. Remember now, the manna demonstrated the rejection of God's provision. This now, the Aaron's rod that budded, demonstrated rebellion against God's authority. Then the third item was placed into the Ark of Covenant, and that's the two tablets of the law. Now, these are not the two original tablets that are written by God, because what happened to those? They were destroyed, right? Then Moses went back up and he wrote on the tablets himself. These are the tablets that were in here now. Two tablets of the law. Exodus 19 says, This was the covenant between God and Israel. This is what we call the old covenant. This is the covenant of the law. When the people saw that Moses, just going back now to show when it was given, the law was given. When the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come. Make us gods who will go before us. And for this, as for this fellow, Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. You remember the story of this, right? Moses is up on the mountain staying longer than the people had anticipated. And so they're getting a little rancid, a little anxious. And they said, hey, let's make some gods as the ones who brought us out of Egypt. And you remember the story where they got all of the earrings. It says in Exodus 32. So all the people took off the earrings and brought them to Aaron. This is the earrings, of course, that the people got from the Egyptians when they left. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. This is an amazing story here. The thing that the people who saw so much of the demonstration, the power of God, would now say that he was not the God who led them out. So they made gods, and it was in the fashion of the gods that came out of Egypt. We could go in to tell you what this calf demonstrated, but we don't. Like the, like the writer of the Hebrew says we don't have time to do that here. All right, Deuteronomy 10 says, Moses, I put the tablets in the ark which I had made, and there they are as the Lord commanded me. This was commanded to Moses by God to put these tablets in the box. Now this demonstrated a refusal of the people to obey God's law. And so what God did then was place these three items in there to show how the people had sinned against him. All of them demonstrated a particular sin. Rejection of God's provision, rejection of God's authority, and rejection of God's law. All of those were placed in the covenant. This ark contained one, the golden jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim. Now the word cherubim is a plural word. Cherub is a singular. So we're talking about more than one cherub. Now these cherubs or cherubim were not just these little babies with little wings you see around there. These were some awesome creatures. They were described by Ezekiel and, and uh, Jeremiah, I think. It's, these are some awesome beings here. And they were placed, they're called the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat that was the cover actually is a cover of atonement they will call it he says we cannot discuss these things in detail we'll go in a little bit detail as i said the cherubim are to have their wings spread upward overshadowing the mercy seat with them the cherubim are to face each other but looking toward the mercy seat not looking toward one another although they're facing one another Their eyes are downward, looking at the mercy seat. Now, so, when they look down at the mercy seat, they cannot see what's inside. They know what's inside, but they cannot see it. Why? Because the mercy seat is hiding it. All right? So, the important thing is, what is this mercy seat? You see, and this is what this whole ritual is teaching. Now, when these things are being so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. In the Old Testament, you have that phrase, divine worship, but nowhere in the New Testament. You never have the idea of divine worship. You never have any reference to a a worship service in the New Testament. I'll show you that in a moment. But into the second, that's the second box, only the high priest comes once a year, not without taking blood. In other words, he had to take blood when he went into into the Holy of Holies. Which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So he had to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was not himself pure. This is one of the contrasts you're going to see. Jesus Christ as our high priest did not have to offer an sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. And he didn't have to go on offering it all the time. He only had to offer it once. This is what high priest once here. That's what they call the day of atonement. Leviticus 17 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. And this is the reason why blood is necessary. And I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. This is an important verse here. The mercy seat. Hiding the sins, the rebellion of God's people to prevent God from seeing it as it were. These are all things that are being taught through these symbols. All right? Now notice, it's the life that makes atonement. So many times when we talk about the death of Christ, we talk about the blood being shed and all of that. But really the emphasis on a life given, not really on the fluid that is shed, is the fact that a life was given. He says, um, God sees then that the blood represents the life of a sinless being. Because the animals that were given in sacrifice all spotless and without no no blemish, no illness or nothing at all. God would not accept those things. He represented a holy sacrifice. He goes on. You know in Romans going ahead now, you see how God applies this truth to us who are under the new covenant. The wages of sin is death. The result of sin is death. That's separation from God. In other words, because man disobeys God, God has to separate himself from them. That's what death means. Separation from God. Um, the mercy seat showed that you. the covering was placed on the Ark of the Covenant with the rebellion of the people underneath indicated. And... So God couldn't see it, as it were. But the only way that could stand is if blood was spread on the covering. If no, there was no blood, God could still judge his people. But because of the fact that the blood was placed on it, the same way the blood was placed on the doorposts and the children of Israel came out and God passed over, that's exactly what's happening here. But it's only a passing over. It's only a covering. Under the Old Testament, it was only A covering. It was like a credit card. You know. You you go to a store. You give a credit card. Saying you haven't paid for it yet. You're not going to pay for that finally. Until you pay the credit card. The bank that you get the credit card from. This is what's happening here. This was a credit card. When Jesus Christ died. He paid the amount. He removed the bill. He took away the penalty. You see. Now God had a problem in a sense. We don't like. To say that, there was a dilemma God had to face. Here were the sins of the people. God to be just had to judge. But God is also a God of mercy and a God of love. What could he do in order to free his people from the judgment that he had to place upon them, being a just God? Verse 7. Only the high presenters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself unto the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Remember now, the blood always represented a life given. All right? And so what the blood represented here was the life or the death, if you want, but the life given by the innocent animal who took your place and my place. Well, not my, your place and my place, but back then, the place of the Jewish people. All right? Their blood, their innocent blood, was seen as a substitute for ours by God. That's why it's placed on the mercy seat. So God now, when He He looks down on the atonement, the, the box of atonement or the uh, 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 the um, mercy seat, took down into the He sees the blood, and so he doesn't see the judgment, the rebellion of the people represented by the manna, the rod that budded, the rodded, budded and, the, and the law. He doesn't see how the people sinned against him in those fashions. He sees the blood, and so he does not have to judge. That's how God met his dilemma, by giving his son as a sacrifice For our sin. This was God's radical solution. No more animal sacrifice. Remember what Jesus said in Hebrews. uh, When he came to earth. A body thou hast prepared for me. Because he wasn't pleased. Satisfied with the body of the animals. So God prepared his son. With a special body. To be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. For the wages of sin is death, but it doesn't stop there. It says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, the Jewish people had no idea of this. However, they were being taught through the way they worship that blood had to be shed in order for God to overlook their sin. Now, in their case, it was only overlooked for one year. The priests had to come back. They had to come back with their sacrifices a year later. This is what the Jews call the day, the day of atonement. And that's why the writer of the Hebrew says they had to keep coming back. And what they were reminded of was not the fact that their sins were forgiven. They were reminded of the fact that they were not forgiven. They were not forgiven, so they got to come back again. Now, when Jesus Christ came and he died and he offered his blood, that was all taken away. We don't have to come back anymore. We don't need any more sacrifices, as Anton said, that's the reason why you didn't go look for a goat on Long Island or a sheep someplace to bring in here today. Because Jesus Christ Himself died, shed his blood, placed it as it were in the mercy seat. That was God's solution to that problem. Now let's go on from here now. Hebrews thirteen says, We have an altar, place of worship from which those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. This is an amazing statement now. He is now applying the truth of the new covenant, the fact that Christ died. He says back then these folk, they worshipped according to the instructions laid down by God. The people themselves could not offer the sacrifices. They had to bring it to a priest. They needed a what? They needed a mediator to worship for them. So in a very real sense, what was happening even back in the tabernacle is something like we have today. People would come, give their offering and sit back and watch the priest do the job. It was impersonal. They were not personally involved in the sacrifice because it was done by the priest, you see. But now, the writer of the Hebrews says, now we have a way of worship that these folk have no right to partake of. In other words, you cannot mix the two. You cannot be a worshipper under the old covenant and a worshipper under the new covenant. What the people did in the old covenant in no way applies to what we should do under the new covenant. We as believers now under the new covenant Approach God in an entirely different way. Completely different. All right. Notice. The bodies of those animals are burned outside the camp. That's the ones that was offered under the old covenant. In other words. The day of atonement. The animals were given. And the blood was shed. But the, the sacrifices were not burnt in there. In the holy of holies or the holy place. They were taken outside whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin. So, it's only the blood that stayed in, not the bodies. It was taken outside because they were seen as unclean. He goes on. Notice now. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. This is quite a twist here now. Jesus suffered outside the gate, not as far as the people were concerned in the holy place where true worship is done. Jesus didn't do it that way. He suffered outside the gate so that he might set aside the people through his own blood. In other words, Jesus was presenting an entirely new way of worship and approach to God. Entirely new way that would involve not only the Jews But anyone who would place faith in him. Now notice here. This is something that we don't really grasp a hold of here. Therefore, as a result of this, let us now, that's those under the new covenant, go to him outside the camp, bearing the same disgrace that he bore. In other words, if we are going to worship now under the new covenant, we have to do it in a way that might bring criticism and opposition from others. You see? We might bring criticism against those who have done it the rigid way and believe that is what they did that counts. He say, no, no, no. That's not it. This is a radical, what I call, a radical appeal to a new way of worship. This is a strong call for non-conformity to a lifestyle of worship that is still bound to externalism, ritualism, and tied to a place and a time. In other words, what the writer to Hebrews is saying is now, we have got to break away from old covenant understanding of approach to God and do it in a new way. Now when you do it, you're going to get criticism because you are going to face the opposition of those who are steeped in tradition. Now remember, to whom the writer is writing to Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish people who were still living when the, tabernacle, when the temple was up. And they were still going to the temple with their sacrifices. And there were many believers. However, the believers were being ostracized by their fellow Jews. They were being persecuted. They couldn't buy. They couldn't get jobs. The children, their families were being... Uh, ridiculed and everything else. And they were facing a lot of problems, and the result of this, a good number of Christians wanted to go back to the way of worship under the old covenant. And the writer of Hebrews says you cannot do that because the worship was a shadow of things to come. When Jesus Christ came, the reality was there. So if you go back to that, it's foolish. You're simply going back to shadows and leaving the real thing behind. That's what he's saying here, all right? Now, verse 15 says, Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice. Now, notice that word sacrifice. That's what the people in the Old Testament did as well, right? They offered sacrifices. The believer, too, is also today, under the New Covenant, is to offer sacrifices. But not sacrifices of animals, Sacrifice of praise, that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. That's the sacrifice. When we realize that we are priests, and when we come to praise God, and when we pray, and when we testify, and we do it in a way that we are focusing on the fact that it was through the blood of Jesus Christ that we've been saved, and so on. And that it was only through his atoning work that we have relationship with God. We offer that as a sacrifice to God. It's not just having fun. It's not just having a good time. It is a way of worship. And this is one of the ways that now are to replace the people going in with a thank offering, meal or an animal or whatever. What we use now is a sacrifice of praise. But we must see it as a sacrifice. And we must realize that when we do it the way God wants us to do it, we are priests offering a sacrifice. All right. Now, this sacrifice of praise corresponds then to the thank offering of the Old Covenant. So rather than bringing animals or any other kind, we bring sacrifice of praise. So it relates to worship under the New Covenant. So our praise, our prayer, our testimonies are sacrifices to God. And we offer to him as priests. We must understand that. It goes on, verse 16. Do not forget to do good and to share with others, notice, for with such what? Sacrifices, God is well pleased. And so we have a couple of other sacrifices we are to offer under the new covenant. The three of them mentioned, praise, doing good, sharing. The fourth one we can look at is our bodies in Romans 12. These are all sacrifices. These all take the place of animal sacrifices under the old covenant. We are still worshiping God, but we're doing it in a different way. We're still offering sacrifices, but we're offering different sacrifices. You see, this is the point that we need to realize. Now, I want you to consider this truth. The New Testament neither describes nor prescribes the kind of worship service we traditionally conduct every Lord's day at 11 o'clock. There's no way in the Bible we'll find described the kind of service we are having today. In fact, you don't even find the word worship service except for one place, and I'm going to show you that in a moment. Consider this also the kind of worship service we traditionally conduct every Lord's Day reflects an old covenant theology rather than a New Testament theology, and I'm going to demonstrate that in a moment. Here's some the only reference to a worship service in the New Testament is found in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. And it has nothing to do with a place or a time. You see, what you have to get out of your minds is that the only place you can worship or the only time you can worship is when you come here at 11 o'clock every Lord's Day. All right? This is not a sanctuary where God dwells. Now we are going to show that he does have a sanctuary where he dwells? But it's not this place here. Now, this is a wonderful building and everything else. But it is not a sanctuary, the place where God says, I am going to dwell here. All right? And the only time you could worship is to come here. That's old covenant thinking. And a lot of people still have that idea. This is what Romans 12:1 says. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, what are the mercies of God? Read chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans. And it tells about Jesus Christ giving himself for us. The Holy Spirit coming to indwell us and all of that. All of these are the mercies of God. Because of these things, what God has done, we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, notice, acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual worship service. The only time a worship service is used in the New Testament is right here, when it has to do with our giving ourselves to Jesus Christ. That's worship service. Now, when it talks about presenting our bodies... This is a once for all, in the Greek it's called an aorist verb here, tense. It's something you do once and for all. Now when you go to Romans 6, you have something that you need to do every day. Where it talks about present the members of your bodies as instruments of righteousness. That's in the present continuous tense. We're supposed to be doing that all the time. But that's based on the fact that there was a time when we once for all... Gave ourselves as a living sacrifice. Notice it's a living sacrifice. That's our worship service. It's not a dead sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. Now, let's look at some of these sacrifices that he talks about. He talks about sharing. This is the Greek word kononia. Uh, It's mentioned in in Acts chapter 4. It says, All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions And we're sharing them with all as anyone might have need. This is what God says is a sacrifice under the old covenant. Sharing to meet the needs of God's people. When we do that as priests, we are giving sacrifices to God. That's what he says here. Caring for the physical needs of the saints for certain and for others as the Lord guides and provides us. God regards that as a sacrifice. Under the new covenant. Then he gives another. says, do not forget to do good, to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Two commands. Do not forget. God is well pleased. Do not forget what? Do not forget to do good. and not to share with others. Why? Because these are sacrifices that pleases God. This is the attitude of a priest under the new covenant. Then he talks about praise. And he describes it as lips that confess his name. Lips that confess his name. The character of Christ. It's not just saying Jesus. It's describing who he is. It talks about what he has done. It talks about his nature. It talks about his character. It talks about his power. It has to do with an ongoing expression of gratitude and appreciation for who God is and for what he has done. That's Praise. And you'll see here, God says God's people, when they get together, we should be doing that. Anton and the, and the singers here should not be the only ones. It should be all of God's people. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. In other words, he's saying we must be thinking about him continually. This one who gave himself for us once and for all, we must be thinking about him continually in our prayer, in our songs, in our testimony. We should be focusing on the fact that we are priests and we are offering these praises as sacrifices to God. Doing good means ministry to others. It's acts of integrity done out of gratitude to God. It's not doing it just in order to get rid of somebody. Stop bothering me. Just to get publication. Just to get your, your picture in the paper. Since that's not it. It's when you're doing it out of gratitude of what God has done for you. As a priest we offer a thanks offering to God by doing good to others. The exercise, you also do it through the exercising of spiritual gifts for the building up or for the edification of others. Notice what Paul says in Romans. This is a fantastic passage. Because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ. That word minister also, by the way, is involved with doing service for God. It's a word that is used in connection with worship. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Ministering how? As a priest, not as an evangelist or a Bible teacher, although that's involved. But his ministry to the Gentiles was seen as something he did as a priest. Ministering as a priest, the gospel of God. In other words, Paul saw his evangelistic efforts as a sacrifice to God. He was a priest when he was preaching the gospel, offering sacrifices to Sacrifices to God. That's a beautiful way to see the Easter song. That was a sacrifice being offered to God. Ministering as a priest, the gospel of God. Notice that my offering. See, he sees sees his evangelism as an offering. Of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason to glory in my service for God. So Paul saw his entire ministry as a sacrifice, as a sacrifice. And this is what I've tried in my own life to see my ministry is as a sacrifice to God. Every day what I do, where I go, the people I meet, everything is a sacrifice to God. If you have that in your mind, that what you do, what you say on an ongoing basis is a sacrifice to God, you won't go to some places that you normally go to. You won't talk to some people that you normally talk to or fellowship with if you see it as a sacrifice to God. All right, and then giving is also a sacrifice to God. Notice what Paul says in Philippians: "I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent." He's talking about financial giving. Notice now if this is how he looked at the gift that was given to him by God's people. A fragrant aroma. A what? An acceptable sacrifice. Well pleasing to God. So he's saying that the money that the church sent to him. He received as a sacrifice. That they were given to God. Not to him. But to God. You see. And so our giving should be given in the same spirit. As a sacrifice. And if we see our giving as a sacrifice. We won't hold on to it as often as we do. With the same attitude. So Paul talks about how our giving should be when it's a sacrifice to God. It should be done willingly. According to ability. should be done liberally. Prayerfully. Purposefully. Cheerfully. We're going to talk about this when we come to chapters 8 and 9 in Second Corinthians. He says in verse 12 though. For the ministry of this service. All this service of worship literally. Is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints. But it's also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. He's talking about our giving in this context to help the need of saints. You remember? He's talking about the money that was received by, the, by him to give to the uh, saints in Jerusalem. He's saying that this is seeing as a thanksgiving when it's given as a sacrifice here. It's a way of worship. It's a way of serving God through worship. And is meeting the needs of the saints. And in doing so, also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God, it encourages praise and worship from those who receive the sacrifice. So, how would a new covenant corporate worship service look then, according to what we've said? First, when God's, let me put it this way, when God's people gather together as priests, and this is the kind of a change in thinking I want you to try to make in your minds now when you come here. You're not coming here to hear good singing. You're not coming here to hear somebody preach. But you're coming here as a priest to offer sacrifices to God. If you come at that mindset, it will change your way of worship completely. So what do you do though when you gather? This praise, this doing good. The writer of the Hebrew says provoking to good deeds. There should be an opportunity where we can encourage other people, believers, to do things for Christ. And to encourage others to do things for Christ. And to thank those who are doing right now. For instance, during the breaks, you should look for people who say, Hey, I want to thank you for teaching the gospel so faithfully to my child Sunday after Sunday. That's provoking to good deeds. Or say, Hey, you know... uh, somebody in your neighborhood who needs this or need that. Why don't let's get together and try to meet that need. That's provoking to good deeds. And that's a sacrifice to God. All of this, though, should be done as a result of presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Only living sacrifices can live this kind of a new covenant worship lifestyle. Those who presented themselves once and for all... As a living sacrifice to God in other words, you belong to him, and you only now to worship Him in keeping with the new covenant law. So here's how you do it. You present your body as a living sacrifice, you praise God continually, you perform loving deeds toward others through spiritual gifts, you perform loving deeds toward others through joyful and liberal giving of your finances, and you do so wherever you are. Regardless, not only here but when you travel, you always being a sacrifice to God. So, look at some of the difference here. We are priests. We don't have to go to anybody as a mediator now. Jesus Christ is our high priest, he is our mediator. But He went into that little box, the holy of holies, and He removed that curtain. He opened the way, and He left it open so we could come after Him now. We are priests who do the service of worship. We are priests. Remember that. Secondly, we are also the temple of God, the sanctuary in which the service of worship takes place. That's why we don't need this building to worship. We are the, sacrifice, we are the sanctuary. We are the temple of God. We are living sacrifices which we offer in God's temple on an ongoing basis. Not only year after year, but on an ongoing basis. Not only every year, but on an ongoing basis. We offer spiritual sacrifices of praise, good deeds, and finances on a continual basis. And so, in one sense, we do not a- attend a worship service at a given place and time. We are doing service of worship continually wherever we are. That's why when we gather together here, this should be a time of celebration. Real time of celebration. When God's people come together as priests to praise God, to provoke one another good works, and to give of our financial needs so God would be glorified, God sees that. as sacrifices under the old covenant. That's why we do. That's what we do in place of the animal sacrifices and other kinds of sacrifices. So this is what we need to think about: Are you going to be a new covenant worshiper, or are you going to worship? under the philosophy of the old covenant. My my sisters, my brothers, the old covenant is gone. It's done away with. Replace the new covenant way of worship and it's far superior. Now, when you go this way, you might find criticisms because some people still want to do things in the traditional way. You see? And you might find some criticism. But we have to find ways of worshipping the way God has directed us now under the new covenant the same way he gave specific instructions under the old covenant. He gives under the new. But we've neglected it. We really have. And we're going to try to see if we can implement some of these things. So I encourage you to come out tonight. Come out tonight ready to praise, to thank God uh, as we gather around the Lord's table. Let's worship as priests under the new covenant. Amen. That's our word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. So clear to us. It's so clear that you've given to us your word as to how we are to worship you and to enter a new freedom of expression, a new freedom of worship, not under the restrictions and the ritualistic uh, procedures of the old covenant. We praise you and thank you for the fact that in Christ Jesus we have been made free from all of this and we can worship you in spirit and in truth.